It's Muppeturgy, and we're putting on the glitz to discuss the Liberace episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hey everyone, welcome back. So glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here with me today are... Michal Richardson. Christy Bauer. And Adam Grossworth. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. Uh, We have a correction slash edition this week. My friend and former co-host on Two Spotted Dicks on the Great British Bake Off. I haven't said that in a while. It's a real mouthful. And certified Canadian Daniel McEckern let me know that the word Eskimo, which we wondered about in the Gilda Radner episode, and which I will not be saying again, is very much problematic in Canada. He says, for whatever reason, it's taken longer for that to take hold in the US, I assume, because we just have so much more northern geography. It's not used up here anymore, apart from the ignorant and outright racist. It's apparently not an outright slur, like the former name of the Washington football team, more like Indian uh, as an outdated colonial word imposed on an indigenous people. Uh, But speaking of football, the Edmonton Canadian Football League team recently changed its name to the Edmonton Elks without much complaining. So now you know. Here is a Muppet News flash. Yep, it took us 57 episodes to figure out we should use that clip to intro this section of the podcast. Uh, We are here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 9 of The Muppet Show, which was produced the week of April 11th, 1978, and aired in New York on October 16th, 1978, uh, the week before last week's episode, Loretta Lynn. Still uh, a week of the New York Times strike. So once again, working with the Chicago Tribune via Ultimate70s.com, it's not a big, exciting news week, but there are a couple of important stories that will resonate for many, many years. Uh, One of them is that the U.S. Supreme Court has let stand a lower court decision that several Skokie, Illinois ordinances, which would have prevented a Nazi march in the suburb, are unconstitutional. The lower federal court had held that the ordinances violated the Nazis' First Amendment right to free speech. On a happier note, I am so excited. Ready! Three! Christy, do you know what happened on October 16th, 1978? I don't. A new pope was elected by the cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church. White smoke billowing from a metal flue above the roof of the Sistine Chapel signaled the election of Karol Wojciola, forgive me, Archbishop of Krakow, Poland. The new pope is the first non-Italian elected to the office in 455 years. He immediately took the name John Paul II. Oh, that guy. Yeah, he was pope for a long time. Well, we can resume saying still no pope for some decades. Yeah, I mean, that's it. It's the only one we're getting for the run of the Muppet Show. But still, we got one. Mazel tov. <laughs> I'm so delighted. <laughs> <laughs> On the Cashbox pop charts, the number one song is Kiss You All Over by Exile. I don't like that. I'm not familiar with that song. Nope. (laughs) Me neither. I know it. I enjoy it. (laughs) I know it now. I have listened to it uh, since looking this up and recording tonight. And yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, We'll put it in the show notes. I I had a good time. Um, And the number one album is Say It With Me, Grease. Still Still the word. (laughs) (laughs) On television. All right, we are not a Little House on the Prairie podcast, but yet. we're getting there. Not yet, <laughs> getting so close. Um, yeah, I want to actually recommend a, a Little House on the Prairie podcast uh, by an acquaintance, Kim Reed, which is is now defunct and did not get up to these episodes. And I really wish that she had, but mm-hmm. it, it's still out there. And I will we'll put a link in the show notes because it's it's great, and it, she's much better at this than I am. But tonight's episode is "There's No Place Like Home" Part Two, and because in the Gene Stapleton episode. I expressed confusion about the Ingalls having left Walnut Grove. This title intrigued me. um, And so I did watch both parts of this episode. And I learned that they moved to the city for Mary and the School for the Blind, which doesn't explain why all the other principals were also there. I have not gone back to find out. But I guess there was some kind of mass exodus because when they go back to Walnut Grove in part two, it is pretty deserted. Anyway, I said that the Ingalls were running a hotel. That was wrong. They just work there. And so did the Olsons and that other friend of theirs with the beard. If you've ever watched the show, you will know who I mean if you see him. (laughs) 
So in part one of this episode, everyone completely independently decides that they hate the city and they want to move back home, mostly because the guy who owns the hotel who they all work for is very mean. And there's also a saloon uh, attached to the hotel where there's gambling and gambling is bad. Uh, And Mary is okay with Ma and Pa leaving because she's an adult now. And so by the end of the episode, a bunch of fireworks that are being stored in the saloon get set off because I guess they can't just leave. The show has to literally burn the place down for some reason. Gambling is bad. That's why. (laughs) Yeah, gambling is bad. But it's not like a fire fire. It's just like fireworks going off on the upper level of the saloon. It's Uh very silly. Um, And everyone sort of stands around laughing and the the mean man is asking for help and they're like, we don't work for you anymore. And I'm like, people could be dead. Like this, it's really, it's really strange. And in the previous scene, Nels quits his job and starts drinking, which they make clear he doesn't normally do. And then he plays some roulette. And I guess he wins a bunch of money, but it's kind of unclear to me if Harriet just steals the money from the table in the commotion of the fireworks, but either way, they are now conveniently rich again and the show completely resets and everyone was back to Walnut Grove. Uh huh. So that's our little house update for the week, which I said I wasn't going to do anymore, but here we are. Shout out to Kim Reed, who I don't think listens to our podcast, but if she does, I'm in her debt. Anyway, the NBC movie of the week is human feelings. In a heaven run like a business, poor returns from the angels are making God disappointed. She decides to set an example by destroying Las Vegas with floods and fire. Because gambling is bad. Because gambling is bad, exactly. The cast included Donna Pescal, Pat Morita, and Armand Asante. And as the angel on a mission to try to find good people in Las Vegas, Billy Crystal. And as God, our old friend Nancy Walker. Perfect. Perfect. Sure. I didn't even look for this. I was like, nope, <laughs> not watching it. Little House is all I had bandwidth for. I mean, what if God sings? I'd look for that. Well, please report back after you do. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Liberace, pianist, personality, homosexual. Although Wait, if, you, if you said that out loud, he might sue you for it. Uh, Vaju Valentino Liberace was born in 1919 in Wisconsin, the eldest of four children. Both of his parents had musical backgrounds. His mother had been a concert pianist prior to marriage, and his father was a professional French horn player when he wasn't working blue-collar jobs. Little Walter, as his family called him, began piano lessons at the age of four. By age seven, it was clear that he had a special talent. Growing up as a gay kid in the Depression wasn't easy for Liberace, but he focused on his music and gained experience wherever he could, playing everywhere from weddings to strip clubs. In his late teenage years, he began learning how to frame his eccentricities as strengths and started owning and developing his flamboyance, leaning in by learning more about art, design, and fashion. As the 30s gave way to the 40s, Lee, as he was called by his friends, was performing with symphony orchestras and touring, and as the decade progressed, he reshaped his repertoire to focus more on popular music than on straight-up classical. He never entirely abandoned classical music, but it was more likely to show up as a novelty, like when he might play a popular song in the style of famous classical composers, or interpolate bits of famous classical pieces into his arrangements of pop songs. In the mid to late 40s, the rest of the pieces began to fall into place. In 1944, he made his first Las Vegas appearance. Later in life, he would become closely associated with the glitz of the Strip and open a Liberace museum in the city. He soon began placing a candelabra on the piano and playing with gaudy, custom-decorated pianos. This is around the time he started going by Liberace without a first name. By the 50s, he was a superstar, selling out Madison Square Garden and even being mentioned as a sex symbol in the lyrics of the song Mr. Sandman. Mr. Sandman Yes? Bring us a dream Give him a pair of eyes With a come-hither gleam Give him a lonely heart Like Pagliacci And lots of wavy hair Like Music critics weren't kind to Liberace's shtick, but he was unbothered, seeing himself as an entertainer rather than a musician, putting on shows rather than concerts. Perhaps that's why he didn't focus much on recording until this point, but in the early 50s, his recording output jumped. Recording was never a key focus, but he did rack up six gold records over time. He spent the early 50s also working his way up the TV food chain, from a local Los Angeles show to a national summer replacement show to a nationally syndicated show that hit big in 1953. The show also got picked up by future Muppet Show producer Lou Grade for British television, which starts to connect the dots about how this Muppet Show episode came about. 
Meanwhile, in 1956, a Daily Mail columnist wrote about Liberace's homosexuality, prompting a libel suit from the pianist, which he won. That was followed by a similarly successful suit in the U.S. against Gossip Magazine Confidential. This might be why his next television endeavor, a daytime show for ABC, was significantly toned down compared to what his audiences were used to, and why it did not succeed. In the late 50s, he faced a career slump by hitting the road again and re-engaging directly with fans in small club dates. A near-death experience in the early 60s inspired him to up the fabulousness of his act once again and return to Vegas with gaudier costumes, bigger production numbers, and even special effects. In 1982, Liberace's former chauffeur, Scott Thorson, sued for $113 million in palimony, alleging he had been Lee's lover for five years. This was dramatized in the HBO TV movie Beyond the Candelabra, which I think is worth watching. The case was eventually settled, in part because Thorson knew that Liberace was dying. Liberace was diagnosed with AIDS in 1985, but he kept the diagnosis a secret from nearly everyone in his life, and he refused to seek treatment. He died in February 1987. So I mostly knew Liberace as sort of a phenomenon more than as an actual entertainer. Like I was aware of there being a flamboyant pianist named Liberace who had a museum in Vegas, but I don't know that I ever really engaged with any of the things he did other than maybe seeing this episode of the Muppet show or seeing his two episodes of Batman uh, certainly, I, I wasn't super familiar with like his music or his television work as himself. Uh, otherwise, uh, until I got interested in prepping for this show, I'm wondering if any of you have Liberace associations or memories. I mean, he's sort of in that same category we've talked about before of just like the '70s. Yeah, like he was just he was just around, and and I think also the extra context here that like I understood that he was gay before I fully understood what that meant. Outside this episode, I just knew the Billy Joel lyric. I definitely want to second the endorsement of Behind the Candelabra. That's where the majority of my frame of reference comes from. It's it's full of really interesting performances and weird casting choices because Matt Damon plays the young lover and he's like way too old for it, but it, it somehow works. And Michael Douglas plays Liberace, right? Yeah. 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 Huh. yeah I also liked it. One thing that you didn't mention in the biography uh, that I found interesting in my research about him is that early on, his stage name was Walter Buster Keys. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Buster Keys. Oh, I hardly know her keys. Yeah. It's a very different persona, I would think. Yeah. Christy, what did you think of the episode? You know, this is a weird one because for the first, like, 80% of it, I was like, eh, sure, this is fine, this is fun, whatever. But then the like closing, closing number happens, and it wins me over so hard, so fast. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, leave it to Liberace to win my weirdo maximalist heart in the final inning. It's great. Uh, overall, it's not necessarily going to stick with me, but uh, it delivered pretty much everything I love from an episode of The Muppet Show. David? I didn't like it as much as Christy did, but I think I like it more than I want to admit. And I think I would have liked it better if it had been structured differently because we meet Liberace right at the beginning. And then we get like a weird, almost like pre-commercial bumper where he's like, hey, remember me? Don't worry, I'm still in this episode. And then... Not almost. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. And then they give him like the last 10 minutes to just do a Liberace concert and also there are Muppets there. So it's just... Uh, it, it feels sort of weirdly off balance but i also really like most of the pieces i just wish they sort of integrated it better michael not that much to add i liked a lot of the pieces of this even though the timing and the pacing was odd and felt odd and even as we were going as they were saying liberace is going to be doing a whole concert for us at the end i was still surprised when partway through the episode i think we got 12 minutes before this and for, then 14 minutes of now it's time for a Liberace concert. It just felt a little lopsided, even though I liked a ton of the first half. And then I liked a lot within the concert. Also, it's not a bad episode. It's not a great or necessarily all that memorable episode. Uh, it was good. I'd put it right in the middle. Hmm. Uh, complete opposite mm -hmm. of Christy for me. Mm -hmm. 
I spent the first half of this going, this is a pretty decent Muppet Show episode that is sort of making the case that maybe they don't need a guest star. <laughs> and then the Liberace concert happened, and I was so bored. <laughs> <laughs> and I take back everything I've ever said about guest stars like just coming on and sort of performing with Muppets near them. And then the second time I watched it, I liked it even less. Like the first half didn't even really do anything for me. I just was sort of bored by the whole thing. And it's in, definitely in my bottom 10, which surprised me a little. But but yeah, like they made Liberace boring, which if nothing else, is not a word I would associate with the man. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm curious if there was a scheduling issue, like if they only had him for one day or something. What they had him do felt like a thing they could have easily shot quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, this was an episode directed by Phil Casson, who is sort of like their the alternate director who tends to be more experimental or adventurous with the things he does with the show. And I wonder if this was like a purposeful experiment of like, let's see if we break the format this way, how it works. And it Maybe. turns out it doesn't, but they right. you know, went to see if they could. And it makes sense. I mean, the format makes sense for who he is, like the conceit of how they're, they're doing the show within the show makes total sense for who he is. I just didn't enjoy the result. Liberace? Uh, Liberace? 30 seconds to curtain, Liberace. Thank you. You know, Scooter, for years I've had piano-shaped finger rings and piano-shaped swimming pools. Oh, I know that. Well, I want to thank the Muppets for making my life complete. I now have a piano-shaped house pet. Whoa. It wants to be walked. Or tuned. <laughs> yeah, Liberace has been beset by a toothy, angry piano beastie. And he's into it. He gives us this big wink when he says, or tuned. I, I don't know what tuned implies if you're a piano beastie. <laughs> well, he gives the piano like one of those, like, oh, you hand... Jesters, oh, you, I mean, piano. talk about not hiding his <laughs> flamboyance. But he'll sue you if you say it. So. Exactly. Also, I was really struck by how Liberace calls them finger rings. Yeah. Well, like, he didn't want you to think he was talking about his cock ring. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, okay. So, Stetler and Waldorf are just trying to get on our bad side. Why must they get things started? I know that this has already been the case in previous cuts to Statler and Waldorf, but it feels like they're doing it deliberately now. Either they don't have a scratch track to sing to, but or it seems like they must have one and they're just deliberately disregarding it. Maybe it's just Maybe. back phrasing is a stylistic choice. That's very annoying, though. <laughs> it is. But it, it's worse this time. I know they've done it before. They're just doing it to get my goat now. Gonzo attempts to blow his trumpet, it sputters, it fails, and then some other trumpet, or according to the wiki, this trumpet, plays instead. That's what's going on. I think it's his trumpet, because he looks at it. (laughs) it. Am I going crazy? This is another week where you very much see Dave Goles' forearm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You're not going crazy, it's not entirely clear, but but my read on it was the sound comes out of the trumpet while he's holding it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I thought it was one thing. The wiki told me another. Yeah, I mean, it could easily be either one. Let's go backstage. Yeah, Muppet Show backstage. This week, we're keeping it classy, or at least we're we're keeping it to the Muppet Show's definition of classy. There are chandeliers hanging backstage. The bird-headed dancers from London's Royal Ballet are coming back. And also, there's Gladys the Canteen Lady serving a fried egg with her bare hand. (laughs) Keeping it classy. So many plates just right there. That's what the chef just puts it in her hand. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I did like that. First of all, we see the canteen from a different angle, and I feel like it gives us a slightly better idea of how it fits into the theater. Uh, and I like that that this begins sort of like a three-sketch arc or a two-and-a-half sketch arc where the things that happen here will then affect what happens in the Swedish chef sketch, which then affects what happens in veterinarian's hospital. Uh, So again, like a little bit experimental with the form and the format, uh, even if it feels a little lopsided. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It gives us some answers. It's not to harp on the plate thing. Gladys puts the egg on the counter in front of Floyd, but Floyd has a plate right in front of them. That was the part that 
It's like, wait, what? Why? And then she does this cute, like, wiping her hand off on her apron. Yeah, I like that. I also like that the Swedish chef was smart enough to put the egg into Gladys's hand yolk side down so that when then Gladys flipped it over onto the counter, it would be yolk side up. Oh. Yeah, whatever yolk didn't get mushed into her palm. Right. Ugh. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) This is a squishy episode. Did they make Gladys more gross? Nope. Hands full of egg. Speaking of the canteen, that is where we start the episode this week. Excuse me down there for a second. Uh, I'd like all of you to be on your best behavior tonight because we have a real artist on the show, Liberace. Liberace! Okay, good. Now listen, uh, later on, Liberace is doing an entire concert for us, so I'd like some dignity on the show. Always dignity. Dignity, (laughs) dignity. This is the one part of the episode I really liked. And uh, as as David mentioned, we now have an answer. We were wondering a few weeks ago where the canteen was. And we now know with with some decent certainty. And 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 also this is this is the the Philip Casson touch, I feel. Um, So this scene happens on like an upper level there's there's stairs down to the canteen and kermit is is like on the landing up above and then scooter tells kermit he's late for his entrance and he runs he runs out the door and we see him run through the the regular backstage set from camera left to camera right and onto the stage and on the way he has an amazing pratfall and then stands up and it's like dignity dignity and then runs on stage um so the canteen is further off stage right and downstairs from the regular backstage set question answered and also just a really cool sequence yeah mystery solved meanwhile over the course of this episode liberace is preparing for his big concert He's doing a concert dedicated to all the birds, or it's a concert for the birds. You be the judge. <laughs> He's auditioning birds in his dressing room. So, <laughs> yes. Is there a casting couch thing going on? Is that the implication? <laughs> I mean, I mean. So, in this first, the first of two scenes involving this audition process, which let's be clear is taking place during the show. Yeah. That's when he pops in to say, Hey, it's a teaser. I'm still here. He's he right. pops in to say, we're almost there. I'm down to 10 finalists. He's like, going to be on in other... a handful of minutes. And he's yeah. 10 finalists. There are other acts happening on stage while these auditions are going on. And um, Fletcher bird, who you may remember from the Leo Sayer episode, swans in as it were and (laughs) just like makes this very grand entrance and then you know first of all talks which i actually found very disconcerting (laughs) and and asks where the auditions are and then like oh doesn't actually i don't think he i think he asks where liberace's dressing room is doesn't he and then like makes his way upstairs and i I just because i'm a horrible person (laughs) my my immediate read on it was that fletcher was some sort of sex worker being called to Liberace's dressing room. Which is fine. <laughs> I mean, he says he's going to That was not my read on it, but okay. Well, your read, your read on it was Casting Couch. Right. Well, same difference. <laughs> well, it's a, uh, it's, it's a distinction. Uh, I did appreciate that, that Fletcher Bird, instead of knocking with his wing hand, whatever, he knocked on the door by like pecking it with his with his beak. Yes, and then like shook his butt. Does this little <laughs> shimmy before it goes into the dressing room? Yeah, well, a he's lot. A dancer. Yeah, There's a lot going on with Fletcher. <laughs> he does have a weird the dancers vibe when he yeah. goes up. He also had like a, a whole like special credit at the end in the credits, which I assume was just a contractual thing because it in, it included the fact that he was performing that Graham Fletcher, the human, was performing by permission of the Royal Opera House. So. That must have just been contractual, but it really stuck out. <laughs> and like, hey, okay, Fletcher, you go, you go. Somebody must have retyped some of the credits for this because Don Celine's name was misspelled as Don Shalin. I, you know, Chris, I have no idea how any of that worked back in the day. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how people did things before there were computers. I, just like technologically, how did the credits work? I have no idea. <laughs> credits? What are they? Who types them? It's a mystery. I mean, I could research, but I won't. (laughs) 
I might, but not right now. <laughs> okay. So Gonzo hears about this audition for the birds. He is determined to get his chickens in on the act. When he hears that his chickens are never going to get there, he says, what about me? It's a little surprising, but here we go. I'm telling you, he's got to see my chickens. Liberace ain't using no chickens in his concert. Then maybe he'll see me. He's only seeing birds. I'm a bird? Yeah, I'm I'm a turkey. You're not a real turkey. Are you kidding? Have you seen my acts? Hey, Lee, I got this real turkey to see you. Okay, so that was the debut of Steve Whitmire on The Muppet Show, or pretty much his, his speaking debut. His speaking debut, with the exception of a line for a penguin last week. But it's his speaking debut. He is debating with Gonzo whether Gonzo is a turkey, and he's using the exact same voice that he uses for the Christmas turkey in the 1987 special Muppet Family Christmas, universally acknowledged to be the pinnacle of human achievement. (laughs) In that special, (laughs) Steve Whitmire, as the turkey, instigates a fight with Gonzo and also instigates debates about who is or is not the Christmas turkey. He also nearly dooms Big Bird to being murdered by the Swedish chef. It's wholesome family fun, pinnacle of human achievement. I stand by what I said. And as the turkey, he sounds like the bodyguard who is debating whether Gonzo is or is not a turkey. Uh, Let's hear a clip from Muppet Family Christmas. I tell you, chicken little, you're my kind of poultry. Uh, Camilla, what's going on here? You got some drumsticks there, my fine feathered mama. Uh, But Camilla's my girlfriend. You gotta be kidding. You're not even a bird. Well, nobody's perfect. Come on, Ninny Penny. Let's me and you go out to the farmyard for a little friendly scratching and squawking. Uh, All right. I mean, Steve Whitmire basically has a voice. A voice. And that's the same voice when he's Rizzo, when he's Bean Bunny. I mean, fortunately, it's not his voice for Kermit. Well, yeah. (laughs) But I'm just getting Rizzo out of that. It's really the content that I find disturbing more than the voice. I mean... Yes. And also, I mean, you know, if you haven't it, watched Muppet Family Christmas, like pause this podcast, cancel your plans, go watch it this instant. <laughs> I don't even watch Christmas stuff and I am 100% serious. And then tell me if this is if that doesn't sound like fun to you. We'll put a link in the show notes because uh, it is not available to stream officially. Anyway, <laughs> the the reason for all the dignity tonight, Liberace spends the second half of this episode playing a concert, and everybody has mixed feelings about it, even in the middle of the concert. Do you like what you've heard so far? Yes! You've spoiled a perfect record! (laughs) I'm pleased you liked it so far. Oh, Mr. Liberace. Oh, hello, Sam. How's everything? So far, everything has been very cultural. And that worries me, sir. Well, I thought you liked culture. Mm. I played the Nocturne, especially for you. Oh. I dedicated it to the birds. Yes, 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 yes. yes. But I know this show, and I have seen your work too, sir. Because you have now played Chopin, it follows as night follows day that soon you will be wearing a rhinestone tuxedo and playing shameless boogie-woogie. I promise you, Sam, I won't be doing that soon. No, I'm going to do it right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's cute. Also, he's already wearing a rhinestone suit. Yeah, but then he switches to another one. (laughs) Yeah, this one is black rhinestones. He switches to gold, which is gaudier and less dignified, I guess. So a general question for the for the group mm-hmm. but, but i guess maybe mainly for david and christy who seem to know things about Liberace. what was he considered classy did he consider himself classy like was that ever the point of Liberace? i would say he was considered classy by people who don't know what real class is uh <laughs> that's maybe offensive but there's always like you know there's always a hierarchy of this right like People who go to the symphony look down on people who go to the Pops concerts. People who go to the Pops concerts look down on people who go to Liberace concerts. <laughs> like, yeah, hmm. I guess it's, I mean, like, look at what he's wearing. Like, and I don't, I don't say this with any, any um, insult at all. Like, I just, it feels like the tackiness was the point. Like, like wonderfully so. 
but it's still like it's not rock music, right? It's not. It, I think it's the way that like Josh Groban fans feel about Josh Groban. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is Josh Groban a sex symbol? Yes. All right. Yes. And, to and, a certain and I think of, he's also not Liberace. <laughs> no, but I think but I think people think he's classy because his music sounds vaguely like opera to people who don't know what opera but sounds he like. He has that kind of voice, <laughs> right? Right, like or like Sarah Brightman in the nineties, right? Like it's mm-hmm. <laughs> like Sarah Brightman probably the here in a Barnes and right? because <laughs> <laughs> like Sarah Brightman also was like kitschy as all get out. Right. But also sort of had that, like, she sings highfalutin music, so it's classier than going to see Poison. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I also right, think well. Liberace at this particular point has sort of, like, solidified into the caricature persona. I mean, it's it's a little bit like, you know, like late stage Elvis, you know, like... I, th- I think the the in- initially successful Liberace was more what uh, w- was less of the, the the Vegas and more of the like just flashy in a different way. Oh yeah, definitely. Like he got like gaudier and kitschier in like the late sixties, going into the seventies. Huh? And at this right. point, this is like you know relatively close to the end of his life. So right. this, this is his his final form where, you know, he was like flying into his concert on a Peter Pan rig and, uh, you know, performing with showgirls and the whole nine yards. Right. Yeah. And rhinestone I mean, bunny ears. Again, the tackiness is the point. Um, all right. Well, speaking of Sarah Brightman. I don't even know. Was Sarah Brightman voice of the snoots? <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, there's like four Phantom of the Opera references in our outline, <laughs> so it just seemed. Anyway. Also, having in- encountered uh, Sarah Brightman face to face once in my life, um, she sort of has terrifying Muppet eyes that oh, are really very snow reminiscent. So you know, it's not entirely off base. So we got a real mixed bag to talk about this week. We start in Greece? Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> um. Is this actually the same set from Tico Tico <laughs> Redressed? It might be. Maybe, but redressed enough that it convinced me. I know, totally. Uh, I only just thought of that. I want to play Kermit's intro first, because given the Liberace of it all, uh, I went to some places when I heard this. Right now, I'd like you to close your eyes and think of exotic Greek dancers, because if you open them, you'll see this. <laughs> I don't think they meant anything by that, but like, just context, you guys. <laughs> I mean, it's a great line. It's in terrible taste, and it's a great line. Yeah, it's fine. Anyway, let's hear the song. Oh, you can kiss me on a Monday, a Monday, a Monday. It's very, very good. Oh, you can kiss me on a Tuesday, a Tuesday, a Tuesday. In fact, I wish you would. Oh, you can kiss me on a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday is best. So this is Never on a Sunday, which is from a movie of the same name, a a Greek movie. And uh, if you're playing the Muppeturgy drinking game, it's a song that won uh, the best song Oscar in 1960. Ooh, drink twice. Yeah, Uh, we've we've got several of the the drinking game. things in the music section this week uh it was written by manos hatsidakis who uh, according to greekreporter.com was one of greece's greatest composers maybe greece's greatest composer and quote his music can also easily be described as the soundtrack of 20th century greece his loss on june 15th 1994 deprived greek music of one of its two main musical ambassadors end quote and it was sung by the star of the movie, Melina Mercury, who won Best Actress at Cannes for the movie and was nominated for an Oscar. And uh, fun fact, she was later Greece's first female minister of culture and sports. <sighs> okay. Yeah. And uh, the plot of the movie is sort of interesting. She played a character named Ilya, who was a 
<laughs> according to Wikipedia, a self-employed, a free-spirited prostitute uh, who lives in the port of Piraeus in Greece, and she meets Homer, an American tourist and classical scholar who is enamored of all things Greek. And uh, he feels that her lifestyle typifies the degradation of Greek classical culture, and he attempts to steer her onto the path of morality, while Ilya attempts to relax him. And w- Wiki calls this a variation on Pygmalion? Huh. Sure. This film was made into a Broadway musical in 1967 under the title Ilya Darling, which uh, Mercury also starred in. Uh, and it's one of the early examples of a film being made into a musical, but they retain the hit song from the film and the score to the show. Uh, it was not enough, however, to make it a success. People found it sort of boring and dreary. Uh, it did not last very long, although it did get nominated for a bunch of Tonys and did produce a tour. So it's largely forgotten today, but like made a little bit of a impact despite not being successful should we talk about when they speak greek in the middle of it (laughs) i mean should we explain the scenario i just want to talk about frank oz being horny piggy because it's great i love it i mean yeah also the lyric you can kiss me on a bleak or you can make it even better you can make (laughs) it on a bleak day a freak day or a weekday be my guest but never on a sunday the one day i need a little rest and there are freak days yeah (laughs) <laughs> i mean just for the time that's a striking lyric yeah i like it, it yeah is. so it's miss piggy throwing herself at a bunch of pigs and telling them what days they can and cannot kiss her and then they proceed to do some i'm not going to say greek dancing it, something inspired by greek dancing they smash some plates they yell some words yeah let's hear let's hear some of those words is hummus even greek it's, it's i was not, wondering not that. greek Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. It's Medi- Mediterranean. It's Mediterranean, Mediterranean. So it certainly yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, and they switch into the Zorba the Greek music, which, or at least a thing that I associate a, a song that I know as Zorba because I know a folk dance to it. <laughs> I don't know where it actually comes from. I mean, it sounds like a theme from Zorba the Greek, but I don't know how much of that is that this is what all bazooki music sounds like, and I don't know it well enough to know the distinction. Well, until somebody tells us otherwise, let's assume that they are doing an 100% accurate portrayal of Greek music and yelling of Greek words. There you go. And the smashing of Greek plates. Hoppa. All I know is this left me really wanting to see a production of Mamma Mia with Piggy as Donna. Oh my God. <laughs> I just love Piggy's look in this. She's got like great sort of like shadowy eye makeup, smoky eye and a, a different wig than usual, which is, straighter and fuller and she's wearing a beret and it's just it's perfect yeah i love the heck out of this number also we see at least one chicken wearing like a black shawl like a like a greek widow which i love (laughs) it's a good time greek music very appropriate for the pigs Uh, the pigs are from greece the pigs are greasy (laughs) still the word (laughs) always the word so, uh, in our UK spot, Piggy makes a genre pivot, let's just say. I want to sing in opera. I've got that kind of voice. I'd always sing in opera if I could have my choice. Signor Caruso. I ought to do so. That's why I want to sing in opera. Sing in opera. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, this is I Want to Sing in Opera, uh, written by Wharton David, George Arthurs, and Jerome Kern. Uh, if you're playing the Mubaturgy drinking game, Jerome Kern is definitely on the list. From 1911, shout out to the public domain. And it's a song that was added to uh, the Broadway production of Leo Thal's operetta, The Siren. 
I, I found a little bit about it in the complete book of 1910s Broadway musicals by Dan Dietz. Uh, apparently, Leo Fall's original version of The Siren opened in Vienna in January 1911. And then, as was pretty standard during the era, it opened on Broadway in August of that same year with four songs added by American songwriters, including this one. And the plot of it is pretty wild. The main character is Armand, the Marquis de Ravaillac, who has been writing insulting anonymous letters to the emperor, because of course he is. And uh, the chief of police suspects that Armand is the one who's doing it. And so he sets this trap where he has a bunch of young women, sirens, question mark, write love letters in Armand in an attempt to like procure a handwriting sample from him. <laughs> I mean, it seems like there's got to be an easier way to do that. Like, oh, you you forgot to fill out your tax paperwork. Just sign here. But, you know, sure. Nope. Nope. It's got to be this. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, the easiest way to do that. Uh, and uh, he falls in love with one of them. And she has no idea that she's being used to entrap him. So, yeah, hijinks ensue. And uh, as the book reports, quote, Emory B. Calvert in the Washington Herald reported that as is the case in all musical comedies, everything turns out lovely. End quote. Mm. Yeah. Every single musical comedy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's cute. It's sweet. It's a UK spot. <laughs> I mean, Piggy again looks great. All yeah. of the pigs look great. The other, the three male pigs are all wearing sort of archetypical opera costumes, I guess, but we were watching it in he says, why are they all dressed like Germany on the verge of World War One? Because we've got like, one of them is sort of in like a military uniform and one of them is in uh, I don't know, like a like a Viking uniform and <laughs> I forget what the third one is. I mean, Link had that helmet with wings on it. Right. Which, I don't know, maybe they were going around wearing them in Germany, but I think more they were wearing them on stages. If you're wondering, uh, Wait, I thought this was a Liberace episode. Why, why have there not been Liberace numbers? Oh, here, trust me. There are, are plenty. There are plenty. We get a huge medley followed by a, an even huger closing number. Uh, so let, let's dig into the medley. He starts his medley with a song uh, that we've heard before performed by, as it turns out, chickens. So yeah, this is Chopsticks initially, uh, which we've we've talked about already because it was played by the chickens in the Bernadette Peters episode. Uh, and a uh, refresher on that, the, the fun fact about it was written in 1877 by a teenage girl named Euphemia Allen. And it was her only published composition, which is a less fun fact, but there you have it. And he folds in Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody number no. two from... 1847, a lot of the public domain in this episode, we should say. And if that sounds familiar, it's a piece that uh, was used a lot in old cartoons. The first appearance of it was in the 1929 Mickey Mouse short, The Opry House. But it more recently, it, it was part of the Donald Daffy Duck dealing pianos performance in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, that's my association with it. I pictured Daffy Duck with just his mouth leaning out of a piano saying, this means war. <laughs> when I hear this yep. piece. <laughs> and it's sort of fun to note that Franz Liszt was sort of the Liberace of his time. He had rabid fans, and the phenomenon was actually termed Listomania at a time when, like, that kind of like rock star fandom and adulation was unheard of. There's actually a movie that I have not seen called Listomania, a Ken Russell movie starring Roger Daltrey of the Who. Sounds like your kind of movie. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of shocking that I haven't seen it really. <laughs> we get something a little newer and a little bluer in the next part of the medley.
It's misty. It sure is. <laughs> it's <laughs> real misty. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's misty borderline uh moist on stage. Uh so yeah, so, so Misty was originally an instrumental by the jazz pianist the great uh Errol Garner, uh written in 1954. And lyrics were later added by Johnny Burke. And it was recorded by Johnny Mathis in 1959, and his version went to number 12 on the Hot 100. And I found a sort of another interesting wink from Liberace to wild fans in this, because uh, in the 70s, uh, the song uh, factored prominently into a 1971 movie called Play Misty for Me, in which Jessica Walter, drink, uh, (laughs) is uh, an obsessed stalker of a radio DJ played by Clint Eastwood. And she's constantly requesting Misty in it, so... uh, (laughs) There just seems to be like an odd theme to this. I don't know if it was intentional, but I I appreciate it. But gosh, the staging of this is really strange. It's suddenly there's fog and it's like he's on a, like a dock or something. And there are these weird chroma keyed seagulls. There's like a big fucking ocean liner in the background for no reason. It's like not a nice dock. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the kind of dock where you might go for sex. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't. It looks Liberace, <laughs> right? It's not the kind of doc where you would put a piano. Like no, I mean, I'm actually looking at it again right now because uh, I thought that the the birds were marionettes, and they they might be. They're also chroma keyed, but I, I hadn't clocked that, and so I just was like, "Wait, what?" When you said that, and so I opened it up again. There's a rowboat, yeah, but like a like a wrecked rowboat, like a dirt, like a like a like a rotting rowboat, <laughs> and a bunch of fishing net. It's like, what a weird way to stage this. Not like, not a beautiful seaside. It's it's just really un- incongruous with, with both the song and Liberace. The I seagulls mean, actually are quite lovely. The weird chroma keyed seagulls. The only part about it that makes sense to me. It's very elusive butterfly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fine. It's lovely. It's, it's not where I, like, I wondered whether somebody was frantically dehumidifying the piano as he was playing or whether they had to just pause and just help I out mean, the it's, piano. It's stage fog. I think it's probably fine, but it was still making me nervous. Yeah. That's there was some interesting camera work going on, which is yeah. the thing that kind of saves it. Like in this weird environment, the camera does shoot from many different angles. Whereas like, you can imagine if this was a season one thing, it would have been like squarely framed. Like it was on stage. Right. So that, that, I mean, I have no excuse for how bizarre it is, but that made it sort of more interesting to watch. It's it's only the scenic design that I find strange. I think they were going for some kind of romantic look, and I don't think they entirely failed. I mean, it doesn't bother me. They definitely had like Phantom of the Opera level stage fog. It's a lot of fog. Uh, yeah, somebody yeah. asked for mist, and they got it. It was not fog at all, but rather mist. Mist. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying they swung. And they missed. Exactly. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, boy. The whole thing sounds a little dry. Nice. (laughs) Oof, oof, oof. So uh, speaking of uh, fan of the opera, we get some Jillian Lynn masked bird nonsense. It's uh, Chopin's Nocturne Number Five. A little bit of Nocturne in my life. There you <laughs> go. Thank you. I, was, I was grasping for it. I was like, the Lou Bega joke is right there. We just gotta. Uh, <laughs> so we are not a Lou Bega podcast, but right, drink. We're inching closer and closer. A little, a little Mambo on the Prairie. We're almost there. Oh my god. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, so a little bit of Laura in my life, a little <laughs> bit of Nelly on my side, a little bit of Mary, she's still blind. A little, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of Camilla wearing rhinestones. <sighs> oh man, keeping the 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 fan of the opera thing going. Uh, Nocturne almost literally means music of the night. It. It is a, a musical piece meant to evoke the night. Nocturne number five in F sharp major, opus 15, number two by Frederick Chopin, 1830. Yeah. 
Chopin, we've talked about uh, previously. We talked about him in the Zero Bostel episode when the Electric Mayhem played the Polonaise. And he was a, a frenemy of lists. So that's sort of interesting. Anyway, this was a horrific nightmare of a number, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just damn birds. Like, they're not, are they still surprising you that they're... That first one really did, yeah. So these are those those same dancers from the Leo Sayer episode with the human bodies in evening wear and the bird heads. And the first one we see has like a very spherical bird head and then this shiny black beak that really looks like an eyes wide shut kind of mask situation. Like it, it just doesn't seem to have any relationship to the rest of it. And so it looks like a creepy mask. Some of them are quite beautiful, actually. But that was the very first one that we saw, and and I just did not like it. <laughs> and they also move in a much more stylized bird-like way in this than I think they did in Leo's hair. Or maybe I've just blocked out the Leo's hair, which is also entirely possible. Well, in Leo's hair, they're doing disco, so it's a lot more fun. <laughs> and yet, you can still tell that they're, they're doing the same choreography by the same choreographer. It's really, I mean, I, I don't want to say that she has a limited repertoire because like, this is the woman who also did cats, which is like legitimately some of the hardest and most athletic choreography, like in Broadway history, which is not this. No. <laughs> and yeah, like if this reminded me so much of masquerade from Phantom of the Opera that I made a little video, which we'll put in the show. <laughs> um, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> Thank you so much. It took me all of two minutes, but they're just kind of like, they're just like, they're just kind of like pointing and bouncing and it's so boring. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like her demo reel for cats. Look, I can do people dressed like animals and they dance kind of like people, but kind of like the animal. I guess. (laughs) But cats is like so intense and balletic and, I don't know. I don't want to. I'm not here to defend cats, but uh, this is not. <laughs> Julian has done some amazing work. So every time he dedicates this performance to all the birds, I think of uh, just 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 play this clip. <laughs> I feel like we should we should at least say that this is Celine Dion. Celine Dion. If I may, I would love to dedicate this next song to all the parents and children of the world. <laughs> Literally everybody. To all the birds I've loved before. <laughs> and as we've established, he loves him some birds. Yep. So I want to clarify that the thing that I loved in this was not the medley. Okay. It was the thing that follows the medley caps off the medley the very last thing it's it's this is what i love now if you run into eight foot two feathered and fine lovely wings all those things bet you like that bird is mine could she bill could she do could she cockle doodle do has anybody seen our So this, in the real world, is a song where the, the, the title varies depending on where you see it. It's, uh, has anybody seen my girl or has anybody seen my gal and or five foot two eyes of blue? And there's apparently some dispute over the authorship of the song, but a published version from 1925 credits the music to Ray Henderson and the lyrics to Joe Young and Sam Lewis. Shout out to the very recently public domain. And it was first recorded by the California Ramblers as the Golden Gate Orchestra in 1925. And interestingly, the California Ramblers included several members who went on to lead their own big bands in the 30s and 40s, including Jimmy Dorsey and Tommy Dorsey. And I fell down a fun rabbit hole on YouTube because this song was apparently the theme song of the Ina Ray Hutton show. And I had no idea who Ina Ray Hutton was. And she was a band leader uh, who in the 50s had uh, a local LA TV show featuring her all-female band called the Melodiers. And that's cheesy, but they were great. Look up clips of them. They they killed it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have some in the show notes. 
so like not to make a thing out of Liberace's relationship with Fletcher, but <laughs> I'm gonna just but, like, okay, here we go. Well, just because of the Liberace of it all, I was just fascinated by the gender politics of this and the and the change lyrics. And you can hear some of it in the clip that we played. So Liberace consistently says, has anybody seen my bird? But the backup birds, I think at least once or twice say the original lyric of girl. They definitely say she several times. But then Fletcher arrives and someone clearly says there he is. And Fletcher has also been like clearly coded as male. And we've heard him speak with Steve Whitmer's voice. And I realized that my bird doesn't like have the same meaning as my girl in this context, but I still found it super weird coming from somebody, you know, who was like both like so flamboyantly, obviously gay and would sue you if you said so, like the choice to, to pair him with this Muppet. Um, I, I just found an, an interesting one. Yeah. I mean, when they say there he is, I actually thought that was referring to Liberace getting up to dance. Oh, they say it when Fletcher enters. That also in response to the question, "Has anybody seen my bird?" So, by the way, you guys, Liberace dances, and it's adorable. It's pretty cute. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird because he's so stiff for so much of the episode, and like when he's when he was when he's talking, like he doesn't. He's real. He he's real stiff throughout the episode, and then he dances with with Fletcher, and it's like the one time that he comes alive. It's pretty great, actually. Yeah, he really loosens up for this one. They do a little Charleston. But they also, it's it started out with the the gawky birds. I, I really thought we were going into Bruce Forsyth territory. I that's what I thought. Also, the gawky birds are eight foot two. Right. Fletcher is not eight foot two. <laughs> A lot of questions about this. This is dedicated number. to all the birds. Eight foot two are the first birds who show up in the number. I don't know. I, I wasn't looking for his his one true bird in this number. Well, I was. I want uh-huh. Liberace to be happy in his final years. I that's fair. I would I would like that for him as well. I don't know if it's going to be with Fletcher Bird. If if there's like a like a bird horniness continuum <laughs> like, you know, he, he's he's definitely not quite uh, on the Bruce Forsyth end of the spectrum, I don't think. It's like it's like Liberace, Bruce Forsyth, Gonzo. The <laughs> <laughs> scale. Oh mm-hmm. man, Bruce Forsyth. God rest him under yes, the stage of the Palladium. That. Yeah, well, I was about to speculate. I, does dedicated to all the birds really imply like all the birds I've loved before, or just because he likes from a bird watching oh, perspective, so. dedicated to I, a concert for the birds? Just I didn't expect that it was going to imply that there were going to be birds on stage with him, and then there were. In Jim's Red Book, Karen Falk talks about uh, the fact that um, Jim Henson really loved birds and in particular love making bird puppets so i think it was just kind of an excuse i'm sure there's something about the flamboyance of birds and the yeah, flamboyance of liberace birds of a feather charleston together <laughs> i joked in our slack that the the yiddish derogatory word oh, for yeah. homosexual is the same as uh the yiddish word for a little bird and I wonder if there was some kind of subtle coding here, but given how overwhelmingly goyish the Muppet Show is, I don't think that's going on. <laughs> I mean, except that we have actually talked about how weirdly Jewish the Muppet Show can be. At times, I guess. But, but also on a, on a scale from goyish to not. Yeah. It's mostly I don't goyish. Think, I don't right. think anyone's doing that. Gonna have to think of the Hamish equivalent. Never mind that jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? Uh, so let's talk about the Muppet News Flash first. Work was started today on the remodeling of the Muppet News Studio, and it is said that it... <laughs> Guess what comes in like a wrecking ball? It's a wrecking ball. That's the All-time news classic Muppet News Flash. This distills everything that is good and funny about it into the shortest possible amount of time. They should all be like this. <laughs> I mean, they all basically are. Yeah, but like, this one does it better. Today, hats are falling on everybody, and then hats fall. That's the that's the newsflash. I think what makes this one better is that it's a plausible event. That you'd be reporting on the news out of your studio as it's being demolished. Well, that renovations are starting on the studio is a more plausible thing than hats are falling out of the sky. I suppose you would just be in a different studio that's not being remodeled. Anyway, let's talk about the other show business sketch. Whatever we might want to call it. 
uh, it starts out as an ordinary Swedish chef sketch and then takes a turn for the vetter and goes to the dogs. Uh, Swedish chef is demonstrating how to percolate coffee and then discovers that he has a coffee pot growing out of his head, uh, whereupon the veterinarian's hospital staff just wander in to investigate and it turns into a vet's hospital sketch. Wow, Dr. Bob, what's wrong with this man? Oh, I think he has an advanced case of ingrown coffee pot. (laughs) Is it rare? Yes, usually it's found in hedgehogs. In hedgehogs? Surely you've heard of porcupines. Uh. <laughs> On the other hand, pigs also suffer from it. Pigs? Yes, haven't you heard of porculators? Uh. <laughs> yep. These are the jokes, folks. I thought this was funny and charming. I don't know what your attitude's about. Yeah, I thought this was great. What are you talking about? I, I didn't mean that to demean the sketch. This was in the first half of the episode that I found delightful and madcap and just bizarre. And that was before we got to the Liberace business. When I say these are the jokes, I mean, these are the jokes that are written to entertain me and I'm entertained. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that when the chef first starts percolating the coffee outside of his head, he's singing in mock Swedish, a tiny snippet of the Gershwin's I Got Rhythm. (laughs) And then he like manages to like flip a plate of stuff <laughs> into the air. Relatable. <laughs> yep. I learned what a percolator is. I've, I mean, I knew it was a coffee maker, but I never actually knew the specifics before, and I won't explain it here. But now I do. But now you understand. I mean, that's one the version of a percolator that that. By the 70s, I think most people had the kind that looked just like a big metal urn and everything happened on the inside and you didn't see it. Yeah, that was actually what made me look it up was that I didn't, I was confused by the device. And and I'm actually still not sure how accurate the prop is. I think the prop is more for dramatic effect. But yeah, now I know, I understand what the process is. And uh, yeah, none, none of the pictures on Wikipedia looked like that. Although I bet you could find a percolator that looks like that in a Brooklyn coffee shop without. It does. It actually. It does. It 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 does make sense, like for how it works, that it could look like that. I found the percolator in his head deeply disturbing. <laughs> I mean, also, it was sitting on, I guess, what was supposed to be the flesh of his head. It was like embedded into his skull. Yeah. Yeah. It was not. It was not okay. Skulls? Well, you know what I mean. I mean, Dead Tom does, but otherwise? Gonzo does. Oh, right. So I'm going to go with yes. Uh, I, I brought that up just to bother you. <laughs> yeah, this was this was a fun sketch until you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we've seen him do a good show. Good. Can we please stop coming now? No. So usually this is when I ask for final thoughts, but I have a final thought, which is I think the way that they allow Sattler and Waldorf to like Liberace feels like a cheat. And I don't care for it. I think it's dishonest to the characters. I don't know why Liberace of all their guests is the one that gets that particular honor. It left me with a bad taste. Does anyone else have final thoughts? Wait, you don't think that famously bisexual Sattler and Waldorf are enjoying Liberace for the camp of it? No, I don't think they enjoy things, period. Except perhaps they enjoy exploring each other's bodies. <gasps> well. <laughs> that escalated yeah, quickly. <laughs> going to push right past that. Uh, that's what he said. <laughs> yep. Given how bored i was by this episode i i agree with you like i don't know why they would not be equally bored and we've established that they hate opera so they're not gonna like piggy's number or like the nocturne would put them to sleep right like yeah you're right they wouldn't like any of this whatever the elusive butterfly of their taste is this episode seems to have found it it might not have landed with us but it landed with them maybe they just knew how litigious Liberace was and didn't want to say anything that was going to find them on the receiving <laughs> end of a lawsuit. Now I'm imagining them going to Vegas, staying at the Mirage, going to see Siegfried, Siegfried and Roy. They're having a good time. Being Celine Dion, having a song dedicated to them yeah. because they are either parents or children. To all the Statlers and all the Waldorfs in all the world. 
Ah, the two genders. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Tune in next week to hear our discussion about the Marisa Berenson episode of The Muppet Show. You might even find out who the fuck Marisa Berenson is. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word with a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I do cats. Cats was my friend. This sir is no cats. <laughs> That's a timely reference. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, so every, every t- listeners, go Google Lloyd Benson. <laughs> oh, come on. No, you're fine. Our, our listeners know who Lloyd Benson is. I can't believe Benson you just pulled the name Lloyd Benson out of your ass.